Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. You can find us on other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, and we have a special guest with us today. We have Dr. Jim Renahan coming from Mansfield, Te- uh, Texas, president of International Reform Baptist Seminary, uh, where that is also um, stationed out there. Um, but Dr. Renahan, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, brothers. It's good to see you again. Yes, same here, same here. Um, and we're here to talk about your new book, or one of your new books. You have a couple that just came out. Um, to the Judicious and Impartial Reader, this is your new commentary on the 1689 London Baptist Convention of Faith, published published by Founders uh, Ministries, Founders Press. Um, very thick and heavy, weighty book, and I guess in more ways than one. Um, but I guess to kind of start off our, you know, our conversation around um, you know, your work at the seminary. Um, do you have any specific updates that you'd like to provide on your work uh, surrounding that? Uh, sure. Uh, we're very encouraged with uh, the way that the work is going. We've seen a con- constant increase in students um, uh, from around the world. We're really happy for that. Uh, I uh, will be leaving, uh, God willing, the end of the week. Uh, to go to Australia, New Zealand, and to offer wow. some classes that we will be doing there. Uh, we also, Dr. Barcelos will be in the United Kingdom, and I think it's in August, uh, to teach a class at IRBS UK. Uh, so we're, you know, we're really thankful to God for what he has done and the way that he is increasing our opportunities to see men trained for gospel ministry. And I, I guess you're really putting the international and international Reformed Baptist seminaries. So are, are you looking in specific uh, regions? Or are you really trying to to go as far as possible with the reaches of the seminary? Um, well, you know, we, we want to be honest with the name and really be international. Mm-hmm. But uh, at this point, our focus of attention really is on English-speaking countries. Mm. Um, we do have an agreement with some brothers in French-speaking Quebec, Canada, um, but the really the focus of our attention is on uh, countries that speak English. Um, I mean, I just came back from Latin America and was in three different countries there and expect to go back again uh, in October. But uh, for the most part, and, and what we're doing is uh, focused on uh, places that speak English right now. Okay. All right. Well, we'll definitely keep you and uh, your brothers in prayer as you are doing oh, that you. important work. We appreciate thank that. You. Thank you. Um, but pivoting now into your book. Um, so this is kind of your second exposition. You did one on the, the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, and now you're doing the second. Um, did this work flow out of kind of the first, or did you have a plan to do uh, multiple editions of particular Baptist works? Yeah, that's a that's a good question because actually this is the this is the primary book, mm. and uh, you know I've been lecturing on the Confession of Faith for about twenty five years now, uh, both at IRBS and then at different places uh, over those years, and a lot of people ask me if I would be willing to put my lectures into print, so it's that's been in the process for a long, long, long time uh, to what I call prosify my lectures. But when I, when I began to work on that seriously, I realized that I really wanted to uh, 
put it in a sequence and deal with the first London Confession prior to the second London Confession. Um, in some ways, that's how my, my Symbolics lectures are structured. Um, early on, we deal with the first London Confession of Faith and then get into the second. But it, uh, and so, you know, I wanted to follow that same type of pattern, although to a large degree, most of the work that I had done was already completed on Second London. So in a sense, it came first, although it was written second. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's, so it's kind of like you're trying to go through these different particular Baptist writings, especially the confessional aspects of it, and, and really um, hit those home. And, and I know that you've used the term before that, you know, we, we have these um, three forms of unity with particular Baptist works. Um, and I think it is the first London Baptist, the second London, and then the, was it the Orthodox Catechism? Of the no, it's, no, it's the Baptist Catechism. Oh, the Baptist Catechism. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. IRBS has actually adopted the three as okay. our, um, you know, guiding documents with, uh, if, if there were to be any conflict that arises between them, uh, the second London Confession would have priority in our understanding. Mm -hmm. right. But yeah, we, we believed that it was appropriate for us to adopt all three. And of course, uh, you know, God willing, there will be a volume three, which deals with the, uh, the places, the 18 questions where the Baptist Catechism differs from the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. You know, I, I figure uh, there are several really first-rate contemporary expositions of the Shorter Catechism. You have John Flavel, you have Thomas Vincent, and you have Thomas Watson, and they're all really good. So why try to put all of those questions into their historical and theological context when you have men who are contemporaries who are writing about it? But there are 18 questions where the Baptists differ. And so that's what I want to investigate and write about. So it'll be a relatively brief book, uh, a short book, because it only deals with the 18 questions. But uh, I hope that it will be useful. Oh, that's interesting, because um, I, I think you and uh, your son Sam have pointed out in you know kind of your historical overviews that there was so much agreement with the particular Baptists, uh, with their Presbyterian and Anglican brethren, that um, it may be focusing on those similarities is, is almost a moot point. But the, mm -hmm. the real distinctives came when they started talking about baptism or, tr you know, the structure of the church, mm -hmm. um, the relation of church and state, etc. So that'll mm -hmm. be really interesting to see those deviations. Yeah, I, I hope it'll be useful. Now, uh, your, uh, your um, book here is uh, different, has a different... Um, emphasis than Brother Sam Waldron's uh, modern exposition of the 1689 in that you delve into a lot of the historical background of um, what's going on with the language of the confession. Why did you think that was important to do? Well, um, you know, in a sense, that was the motivation for the doctoral work that I did back in the 1990s. Um, I, I came through, uh, was pastor of a of a Reformed Baptist Church beginning in 1984. And, uh, you know, we had a confession of faith, but we didn't know the names of very many of the men who had adopted it, apart from that, that listing that you always see. There were names there, but we didn't know really much of who they were, besides maybe Benjamin Keach or William Kiffin. But beyond them, we didn't know. Uh, likewise, we didn't know anything about any of the churches that adopted the confession of faith. We didn't know where it came from, 
who were the editors, why it was put forward. And I, I always felt like that was lacking in my own understanding and perhaps in many of my brother pastors as well. And I thought that it would be good for us to be able to learn some things about the men and their churches and the theological context out of which the confession comes. So uh, when I did my doctoral work, of course, it was on uh, the doctrine of the church, and that was the book um, Edification and Beauty uh, that, that came out of that. That was my uh, PhD dissertation. Um, and then as I taught uh, the symbolics class, I realized that, uh, that what I had done for uh, ecclesiology uh, ought to be done for the rest of the Confession of Faith. So my lectures focused on that. Um, you know, how, where, where did the, does the confession differ from its source documents, being the Westminster Confession and the Savoy? Why did the Baptists differ? Um, and then what, what, how do they reflect commonalities? Uh, you know, when the language is the same, why is it the same? And what are they confessing? So it seemed to me that, that we needed some um, context, we needed some history, we needed some understanding of the confession. You know, uh, it, it's really easy, and I, and I did this uh, as well when I, uh, in my younger days, it's really to, easy to read older documents and interpret them as if they were written 10 years ago. Mm. And we, we, we forget that language changes over time and uh, even that theology develops. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the categories that we use for eschatology, um, premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-tribulational, those, those are not really uh, historical categories. They're recent 20th century categories. But it's very easy to read them back into the history of the church and interpret old documents as if they promoted premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. When... Uh, there, there may be similarities between various aspects of those positions, but they're not identical to the way that they would be expressed today. That's just an example. I think that it could be expanded to many of the chapters of the Confession of Faith. And so I, you know, I, I wanted to be able to provide to men an, an opportunity to see the confession as it was received. You guys were at the Keach conference a couple of years ago. Maybe you remember the illustration that I used when I, I said, imagine that you're a, uh, a member of one of the London churches in September 1677, and you hold in your hand uh, the first printed edition of the confession, and you're reading through it. What would be on your mind, and how would you understand it? Not as a 21st century, well-educated theological Christian, but as a Puritan era 17th century church member whose theological education would also have been very fine um, because he would have sat uh, through uh, or under the ministry of well-taught Puritan ministers and would have had access to those leather-bound editions of Puritan works that we like to to look at when we go to libraries. You know, they're, they're too expensive for us to buy they were able to go to a bookstore and buy them and own them firsthand. So they, you know, they had great resources. So my, my question is, what was on their mind when they read the words of our Confession of Faith and how would they have understood it? So I can't um, be absolutely certain that my interpretation exactly matches 
that man sitting in his uh, parlor reading the confession in September 1677. But I think that I can come pretty close. And for the most part, I think I probably hit the mark in it. So it's it's a very different approach. It's not seeing the confession through modern eyes. It's seeing the confession through 17th century eyes. Yeah, and that's that's a good point you bring up because it, it is easy for us to be very anachronistic in mm -hmm. our looking back in history instead yeah. of doing the work to look at the context of why somebody said something that they did, especially because there are certain nuances in our own confession. Um, and you talk about this some... Um, like in the place about um, necessarily contained. What does that mean mm -hmm. yep. in uh, chapter one, paragraph six? Yep. Um, and having that historical context really helps us to, you know, what did they really mean by that? What were they pulling from? Where were they coming from? What was the background of the authors? And all that stuff can help us to see right. um, what was said. Exactly. Anachronistic is exactly the word to use. You know, also, there are nuances about the way that our confession of faith alters the language of the earlier documents that are important to take note of. Um, one of the, the factors that was involved in the publication of the confession was the theological unorthodoxy of a man who had been sent out from London, whose name was Thomas Collier. Mm -hmm. uh, and Collier was very prominent and he was identified with particular Baptists. And he actually published some books with the title Confession of Faith in it. And so it seems that the, the London men were concerned that others on the outside would read Collier and impute his sometimes heretical views to the churches that were quite orthodox. And so some of the, the changes, the nuances of language are specifically directed towards the errors of Thomas Collier. Um, you know, in chapter six, for example, where the language our first parents is used, uh, sometimes is criticized. Well, you know, okay, whoever edited the Confession of Faith made a mistake because uh, Eve is not the federal head of the race. Adam is. So mm -hmm. why did they use the language our first parents, which, by the way, is in Westminster as well? Well, the, the reason that they did that is because Socinianism, as advocated by someone like Thomas Collier, denied that there's any relationship between us and Adam and, and the imputation of his sin. You know, the, our confession teaches us that, the, that his sin is imputed to us by ordinary generation. So it's necessary that Adam and Eve um, cohabitate and produce children and that we are ultimately the descendants of that, that couple. So that the language, our first parents, is not intended in any way to make Eve a co-federal head of the race. It's to counter the Socinian view that says, Sin, as we know it, is simply imitation. It's, it's a Pelagian view of sin. You're brought, born pure. You're a sinner because you imitate others, not because you have original sin imputed to you. Orthodoxy says, no, or we are sinners because original sin is imputed to us, and that imputation comes by way of ordinary generation all the way back to Adam and Eve. So it, you know, it's, it's, it's easily missed in the 21st century, but in the 17th century, it was a really important point to make. And so, you know, I, I, I uncovered and found things like that that I thought were enormously helpful. In fact, the, more, the closer that I worked with the text of the confession, the more that I came to appreciate the care with which it was edited. Um, no mm. changes were made by accident. There weren't any things that were left out uh, or they, that were oversights. 
these men were really sharp scholars and uh, they worked very hard and they expressed themselves really well. So we have a great document. Um, also, you know, we can say it is the final post-Reformation English confession of faith. And in mm. that way, the, the, the authors or the editors have the privilege of standing on the shoulders of those who went before. So that the, the best of English Puritan theology is uh, coalesced into our confession of faith. That's not to say that, uh, that's not a boastful statement to say, well, it's better than Westminster and it's better than Savoy. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, that our fathers had, had the benefit of those who had gone before them and brought their thoughts into our confession of faith. So when you read my book, and you're constantly coming across Edward Lee and Francis Chanel and William Ames and John uh, Owen and Thomas Goodwin. It's it's to say our fathers were very happy to identify with them and to grow in their expression of theology as a result of the reading that they had done. And you see really this church Catholic mindset of pulling oh. from the universal church. It wasn't Let's come up with something new because, you know, we don't like those Anglicans over there. We're going to, they, they saw themselves as receiving that tradition of biblical truth all the way down from the early church. Yeah. Uh, and the, the retrieval going on, really. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, well said, and it's, a, it's an important point to make, that there is a, a Catholicity to the, the doctrines that are contained in the confession. Indeed, it's Baptist, okay? It, it, yep. The covenant theology is a Baptist covenant theology. The mm -hmm. ecclesiology is a Baptist ecclesiology. But the rest of it is easily recognizable orthodoxy that mm. uh, crosses all of the boundaries uh, in English Puritanism. And if, and if geographically you cross the English Channel, it would have been recognized by the Dutch, by the, the Genevans, um, by uh, you know, all of the Reformed churches in Europe as well. Now, in preparing for the book or, or during the actual writing, was there any section that you really deepened your understanding in or changed your mind about what the uh, what the historical background was for it? Um, no, not so much. Although, let, let me give you an answer to that. Uh, that change happened for me when I was writing my PhD thesis way back in the 90s uh, and dealing with ecclesiology. I can remember a day, it was a uh, late autumn day in London, one of those typical uh, hazy, not hazy, um, misty, wet London days, a Saturday. I took the bus from Oxford in and was sitting in the Guildhall Library and reading the Petty France Church book. And something had been troubling me for weeks. I, I wasn't sure what it was. And all of a sudden it dawned on me what, what was going on, that is that there ecclesiology was not exactly the ecclesiology that we were practicing in, of course, that was the end of the 20th century, it was the last decade. And uh, it was it was like everything opened up to me suddenly, that, that I, I recognized and I understood what they were about, because I had brought with me my preconceptions and simply expected to find the, the things that I had been taught and that we had practiced uh, and, and I found that they were very different. It took me a while to, to have that, in a sense, breakthrough, but that happened. So not when I've been writing the book. That happened to me back then. But um, I, I would say that 
I, I tried to be careful uh, in a lot of areas, and I, I called in favors from a lot of friends. Uh, you know, uh, to write a book on the whole confession means that, in a sense, you're a jack of all trades and a master of none because you have to deal with 32 different chapters and a whole lot of different doctrines, which means um, there are other men who have focused their attention on specific issues uh, that are that can help me to ensure that the way that I express myself in certain chapters is exactly right. And so, um, you know, chapter one, I had Dr. Riddle helping me to, to think through some of the issues there. In chapter two, I had Dr. Dolezal uh, reading and helping me there. Um, in chapter five, uh, my former co-elder, Jason Walter, helped me very much. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter six, thinking about the fall of man. Um, one of my former students who had spent a lot of time working on the doctrine of providence, I asked him to read that chapter and help me to express myself well. Um, of course, when it came to chapter seven, uh, there's a young man that I know fairly well uh, who helped me deal with covenant theology. And then in chapter eight, um, you know, of Christ the Mediator, I wanted to make sure that I had that one right as well. So actually I contacted a couple of friends. And there's one guy in the background who really helped me a lot, and that's Richard Barcelos, you know, mm -hmm. just running things by him and asking him questions. So, uh, you know, uh, I appreciate the, the way that people have thanked me for the book, but in some ways... Um, there are certain places where others have made sure that what I've expressed is proper and correct. And I deeply appreciate that. Now, kind of a, along the lines of talking about your development of the book, was there any part of it that in terms of topic, as you were bringing these things out, that you found particularly difficult to exposit upon or explain historically? No, um, you know, I had collected a lot of material over the years, mm. um, and I nothing comes to mind immediately that uh, was uh, so opaque that I couldn't find material to help explain it. I'm sure you guys have looked at the book, and you know that I'm constantly going back to the contemporary literature or previous literature all the way back into the, the early church at times where St. Augustine will appear or, or mm. someone else. Um and, and because of the fact that our confession of faith is so carefully orthodox, it was fairly easy to find examples in William Ames or, or Edward Lee or John Owen or Thomas Goodwin or any of the others to support the, the pardon me, the point that I was trying to make. So I, I don't think so, brother. Okay, okay. No, it, it's just kind of one of those questions that I guess comes up as you're reading. You're like, hmm, I wonder what, what issues may have been challenging. I guess from the reader's perspective, uh, one thing that um, I found interesting was the discussion on infant uh, mortality and elect infants um, and some of the controversy that surrounded that historically, even among particular Baptists, it seemed, um, didn't necessarily come on... Um, come to an agreement of what that view was to be. Um, so I found that challenging in my own right to, to work through historically and theologically and see what, uh, you know, kind of what is the confessional position on that. But uh, that was a very interesting aspect of the book. Yeah, I, you know, I tried to be honest when there were places where 
there could be a, a, a spectrum of opinions mm-hmm. and not not and 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 recognize that there was a spectrum of opinions um i think that that's what you have to do i was trying to give an honest interpretation and uh, not not make it what i think the confession means but rather fit it into its context which means sometimes you you come across those kind of situations um go back to eschatology uh what what was their eschatology well they had different opinions and uh i think that's why chapter 31 and chapter 32 are relatively um broad in their expression rather than sometimes what we've grown up with as very specific if you don't hold this detailed position then you're outside the bounds they didn't even think in those terms yeah they seem to it was focusing on the those orthodox roots like with eschatology we believe in the resurrection we believe christ is coming again maybe how all that works out in the end we might disagree on but those orthodox tenets were there even with uh, the concept of elect infants there is the you know god is electing god is saving regardless of how that pans out there is mm-hmm. this principle, you know, salvation is in Christ and God is the one who saves regardless of what happens. So right, right. it's like even in most of these disagreements, they they always came. They seem to always come back to those core mm-hmm. Orthodox tenets regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, where can uh, people go to find a uh, copy of the book? Well, um, the major distributor is founders.org. Um, I have seen it advertised for sale from solid ground Christian books. And and I know that there are some other uh, major booksellers who are in the process of determining whether or not they'll carry it, uh, which I hope they will, but I'm not going to name them right now because I don't know whether or not they will. You know, the, uh, the first printing sold out in about two months. uh, Wow. Which amazed me. It was about, it was more than 2,100 copies that they printed and sold out and uh, now they're on a second print run um that I, i'm really thankful for that that means a lot of people bought the book and uh, hopefully are, are finding it to be helpful oh i can say at least for me that i don't remember what it was now but i did have to look something up and it and uh i found it helpful so Good. um uh is there anything that we can pray for you specifically for your uh, upcoming work well i have a very busy summer um i'm you know here we are on a saturday late in june and i leave on tuesday and my email will have a vacation well an out of the office reminder that says i won't be back at my desk until late august wow Um, because you know i'm going to australia new zealand to teach courses uh down there um and then um we'll be spending some time my daughter is getting married so we'll be going up to the Northeast for her wedding and then uh, be going to Canada to do some speaking in, in Quebec with the brothers up there. Uh, we'll be at, um, uh, at Josh Summers Church in Kansas City in early August That's for a right. conference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, pray for uh, safety and travel, um, for sleep, uh, you know, crossing the international date line uh is a challenge and i have to do it both ways uh i'll be down under for about three weeks um so you know i'm i'm not a spring chicken anymore and uh, i do find that sleep sometimes is the the biggest challenge um 
so pray for that but pray for god's blessing on the work and uh, also that i can get volume three done i mean with all this traveling in the next couple of months uh there isn't going to be any writing on that book uh, so that has to be done probably maybe in the fall i hope <laughs> is there any uh are you allowed to say when there's a tentative publishing date for volume three uh, I wish that I could give you a tentative writing date for volume. <laughs> <laughs> Jumped a little too far ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Renahan, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate the conversation and the fellowship too. It's it's good to to catch up and well, and thanks. see what the Lord is doing in these other areas. And thanks. Uh, we appreciate your work in this Th area. Thank you, thank you. Greet your welcome, pastor, pastor for me. Uh, Absolutely. When you see him tomorrow and. Uh, Appreciate him and appreciate his work. So, we will. Th thanks for having me on. I, I am very thankful for this. You're very welcome, Pastor. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today. And Lord willing, we will be back next week. Take care.